0: and good evening everyone welcome to tectonic my name is Mark Hurst I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU freeform station of the nation live from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey it's great to be back I have not been live here for three weeks I had a new show for you on July 4th two weeks ago and then I wasn't here in any way, shape, or form last week when it was my great privilege to invite station manager Ken Friedman to guest host, and I have not had a chance to listen to that show, but I hear it was great, and DJ Bryce was on. So happy to hear that. I did take a look at last week's playlist, which has some uh, notable images that you should take a look at. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, you can find it in the archives at wfmu.org so thanks to station manager ken thanks to bryce and thanks to everyone for tuning in this evening i've got a great show for you this evening um i'm going to be speaking with ben tarnoff author of a new book called internet for the people the fight for our digital future and if ben tarnoff's name sounds familiar that's because he was on the show with his wife moira weigel Uh, back in November of 2020, talking about their book, Voices from the Valley, which is another interview that I would recommend to you if you missed it. This was a book, Voices Voices from the Valley was a book that was a little bit like uh, the old Studs Terkel oral histories. If you ever read any Studs Terkel, Weigel and Tarnoff went around Silicon Valley and... Talked to employees and contractors from various Silicon Valley firms to get a a well balanced and nuanced view of what it's like to live and work in the Silicon Valley economy, and um, and that was that was really helpful and interesting to me to uh, to get a, a unique perspective on that. And Ben has done something similar in his new book, Internet for the People, in that he's giving uh, a, a well-rounded and in-depth look uh, at something technology-related. In this case, it's the entire Internet. He's placing uh, Internet history into some context, and he has a focus on the over-commercialization of the Internet. And as we know from past episodes, that commercialization is now in the hands of a very small group of firms uh, which I don't like <laughs> for various reasons. Go back and listen to past episodes and you'll, you'll know why. We don't get too much into that here. But we are going to talk with Ben about uh, where the the commercialization of the Internet came from and what some of the effects are and maybe a little bit on what we can do uh, to attempt to bring about a better, more just, less consolidated, and less absolutely toxic and unethical Internet like the one that we have today. Now, before I get to the interview, I will say that uh, the uh, over-commercialization of things, uh, if I have some time after the interview, I may segue that into uh, a little reflection on where I was in the past week, uh, which is the Florida Keys. And uh, it was my first time in the Florida Keys. And so, if we have some time, I think we will. I'm going to try to connect Ben Tarnoff's new book to what I saw in the Florida Keys. And so stick around. You don't want to miss that. Um, If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, you can go to WFMU.org. Click playlist and comments. There are listeners chatting away right now. Let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Ben Tarnoff, author of Internet for the people here on Tectonic on WFMU. Ben Tarnoff, welcome back to Tectonic. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. It's nice to have you back on the show. You were first on in November 2020 with your wife, Moira Weigel, talking about your book, Voices from the Valley. And that's a conversation I'd recommend to Tectonic listeners. But today, you're back solo to talk about your new book, Internet for the People The Fight for Our Digital Future. And I'm looking forward to diving in. Let's start with your premise of the book, which I completely agree with, which is that the internet is broken. Ben, what are some aspects of the internet that need to be fixed?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of ways in which the internet is broken, and we could talk about its brokenness by moving through the layers of the internet. So starting at, let's say, the basement of the internet, the pipes, the physical infrastructure, we have severe inequalities in broadband access. More than 162 million Americans do not access the internet at broadband speeds, which is an astonishing number if you think about it. And there are communities all over the country, primarily rural and poor communities, where people don't have internet access or don't have decent, high-quality internet access. And the scale of this crisis was really revealed During the early days of the pandemic, where people desperately needed to get online, to be able to work from home, for students to be able to take classes online, for people to be able to apply for unemployment insurance, and they couldn't do so at home, so they had to flock to the parking lots of churches and other community organizations that were putting up Wi-Fi networks. So in short, one of the brokennesses of the internet is the severe inequality in how connectivity, Is distributed. If we were to move up the stack of the network and talk about the so called platforms, which is where our conversation typically focuses on, we could look at the role of a company like Facebook in amplifying and propagating right wing propaganda on social media and relatedly, algorithmically amplifying racism, sexism, and other oppressions. We could think about Uber and related companies and their role in facilitating and deepening the exploitation of app-based workers who are managed algorithmically. So the list goes on. And my point in the book is not to simply provide a laundry list of all of the ways in which the internet generates destructive downstream social effects, but to provide a story that gives us a degree of connectivity to help us understand how those various evils are connected and that they share a common root in the Internet's privatization.
0: That's right. You say at the very beginning of the book that this book tells the story of the Internet's privatization. At the end of the book, you had a sentence that I thought served as a a nice summation of your approach. You write, understanding how privatization made the modern Internet is essential for any movement that seeks to remake it. So there's a thread throughout this book where you're pointing out the harmful downstream effects of the decisions made by these giant companies. And it's the story of privatization in parallel with the story of the the birth of all of these harms. And it all starts in the 1990s. I mean, you you started your early history of the internet well before that, but the privatization of the internet started to take place in the 1990s in an environment of what you call free market triumphalism. What was happening there?
1: To understand how the privatization of the internet began, I think we need to understand just a little bit about where the internet came from. So the internet comes out of a Pentagon project In the 1970s, over the course of the 1980s, it becomes a network of networks, you know, a cluster of interconnected networks, the term internet originating in inter-networking. And by the early 1990s, it's under the leadership of the National Science Foundation, which is a federal agency tasked with supporting basic research. And the National Science Foundation decides that they are going to privatize the internet, which is to say turn the internet over to the private sector sooner than anticipated because privatization was the plan all along. But they accelerate the timetable because there's so much demand to get online and they figure the only way that they can expand capacity is by turning to the private sector. Now, critically, the date is April 1995, And this is the date in which the National Science Foundation terminates the publicly managed backbone of the internet, NSFnet, and the private sector takes over. And what's important to understand about this transition is that it happens with no conditions, with no compensation. If you think about the scale of public investment required to construct the internet from scratch, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars over the course of many, many years. The private sector takes over the internet doesn't pay a cent for it. And there is no enduring public or non-commercial foothold in this new network. Essentially, corporations ensure a total dictatorship over what becomes one of the essential infrastructures of our lives.
0: One of the things I really liked about that mid-90s history that you write in the book is you're pointing out that it could have turned out a different way. As you write, To continue the Internet's evolution, a new arrangement could have taken many forms. Rather than exploring them, though, the government empowered industry to unilaterally dictate the terms of the transition. And you point out that Senator Daniel Inouye introduced a bill in 1994 to offer free access to the Internet to organizations such as libraries, nonprofits, and educational institutions. So there was already an impulse in Congress to reserve bandwidth and access outside of the privatization, outside of the grasp of these emerging companies,
1: and it was just squashed. That's a really important point, which is that there were always alternative proposals for how to popularize the internet without comprehensively privatizing it. What industry was presenting, and in the substance of their lobbying was making possible, is that There was a choice between keeping the internet as a restricted academic research network that was really accessible only to more technical folks or completely privatizing it. But in fact, that was a false choice. There were a number of different paths that the internet could have taken that would have enabled more people to come online, that would have enabled it to become a mass medium without handing the private sector total sovereignty over the internet. And you refer to one proposal by Senator Daniel Inouye, which was often referred to at the time as a public lane on the information superhighway. And it referred back for inspiration to the legacy of public media, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The argument being, you know, we reserve spectrum in radio and television for public, non commercial uses. What might that look like on the internet? But of course, Despite having very interesting and useful ideas, there was no social movement that emerged that could make those ideas active and overcome industry opposition.
0: And now what we're left with are pipes that are over-consolidated into just a few hands, a few companies. You write in the book that these days, Comcast, Charter, Verizon, and AT&T are responsible for most of the high-bandwidth service in the U.S., and they like the consolidation. As you write, these companies actively collaborate to avoid competing with one another, and they charge smaller providers for carrying traffic, and they negotiate using nondisclosure agreements to ensure that the deep workings of the Internet are not only controlled by big corporations but hidden from public view. Let me just unpack a couple of things there because these all have connections to some past shows. A couple of years ago, I had Susan Crawford on talking about her book, Fiber, which described the consolidation of the pipes that you're also writing about here. And it's just, it's infuriating to see the missed opportunities due to the concentration of power in just a few corporate hands. And then the the use of NDAs we covered recently, with Alec McGillis talking about his book, Fulfillment, about how Amazon negotiates with local communities, with NDAs. These trends of consolidation and concentration are all too common in American communities. And the outcomes are always bad, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I mean, as you explained, Mark, these telecoms have benefited from the terms of privatization in 1995, and also from a series of subsequent deregulatory moves over the course of the 90s and early 2000s, many of which took place under uh, the George W. Bush era FCC. And what that has resulted in is a highly concentrated market for internet access. You know, as you pointed out, there are four companies that control 76% 76% of all internet subscriptions in the country. And what is the result of all of this? Well, the result is that Americans pay some of the highest rates in the world, higher on average than those in Europe and in Asia, in exchange for awful service. And we have large swaths of the country, large chunks of the population that remain unconnected or underconnected simply because it's not profitable for the telecoms to get these people connected.
0: You write about one of my favorite examples of an alternative approach from Chattanooga, Tennessee. The people in that city decided that they wanted fiber to every home in the community with reasonable prices and not owned by the local monopoly, which was Comcast. What happened when the people of Chattanooga fought Comcast?
1: Well, the good news here is that there are real alternatives for how we organize and run the pipes of the internet. It doesn't just have to be Comcast, Charter, Verizon, AT&T. And a great example is The Gig, which is the name of Chattanooga's city-owned broadband network. It started offering service in 2010. At that point, it was offering the fastest residential speeds in the country. And it continues to offer very good quality service for reasonable rates. More broadly, there are more than 900 community networks across the country. That operate on similar principles. These are networks that are either municipally owned like Chattanooga's or cooperatively owned by the users themselves. And research has shown that community networks tend to offer higher speeds at lower rates. And the reason is simple. The reason is that they're not funneling money upwards to spend millions of dollars on executive pay packages, which is what Comcast does, or billions of dollars on stock buybacks and dividends to enrich investors. In contrast, these community networks can actually invest in connectivity, and they can prioritize social needs such as universal access.
0: A couple of years ago, November of 2019, I had Scott Rasmussen and Jillian Murphy from NYC Mesh, which is a community-owned network here in New York City. That network has gone from success to success in in the intervening years. It's continuing to grow. And bring opportunities for low-cost, cooperatively owned access to the internet. Are there other cities right now that are putting in mesh networks that you're excited about?
1: Yeah, and you know, mesh networks is an interesting architecture, Mark, because one of its features is resilience in disaster scenarios. You know, New York folks often point to the role of the mesh network in Red Hook. Uh, After Hurricane Sandy, where that neighborhood of Brooklyn was absolutely devastated and people obviously didn't have conventional access to the Internet. But the mesh network stayed up and it allowed neighbors to communicate with one another, to coordinate emergency response. So there's another element here, which is, you know, in a world that is facing more and more disasters because of climate change technologies like mesh networks can actually help neighborhoods retain some level of coordination and mutual aid in the face of those disasters
0: what's what's interesting about going back to the gig example from Chattanooga is that seeing some of these examples of community owned networks or municipally owned networks the big providers the monopolies like uh, Comcast come down really hard with lobbyists and lawsuits and ad campaigns spending millions of dollars to try to shut down these really helpful efforts uh, for the community. And I thought you had a really (laughs) good phrase. I underlined this uh, in the book. You're discussing why would giant companies spend millions of dollars to shut down a fledgling effort at bringing cooperatively owned bandwidth to a little community. And you write, These companies are afraid of, quote, the long-term threat of a good example. (laughs) These companies can't stand the idea that word might get out that there is an alternative.
1: That's right. That's right. Because, you know, it threatens the whole basis of their business model. And one of the things these companies have been doing very effectively is lobbying state legislatures across the country to pass bills that restrict or outright forbid municipal ownership of broadband networks. This has happened now in more than a dozen states, so they're erecting significant legal barriers and also engaging in frivolous lawsuits in order to try to shut these community networks down.
0: All right, so that's the story of the pipes, and as you said earlier, Ben, this book, Internet for the People, is really divided into two sections, talking about the pipes, that is to say, where people get their bandwidth their access from. And it talks about the platforms. The platforms are more commonly discussed on this show. These are companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon and so on. And the second half of the book covers the history of these platforms and their business model, their predatory business model, and what we can do to address some of those harms. The connecting point is a couple of pages where you're describing the infrastructure of the pipes that these big tech companies are now putting down. Here's what you write. Today, six companies, Google, Netflix, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, and Amazon, account for nearly half of all traffic on the Internet. And Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft now own or lease more than half of undersea bandwidth. So what you're doing is you're showing us, now that we've established the layer of threat and harm that comes from companies like Comcast, Charter, Verizon, and AT&T, if we go up the stack, as you say, and look at companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, we're seeing that the platforms also are enjoying vast inequality in their influence and power relative to the the rest of the market and and the citizens in the country.
1: Yeah, it's an important point, Mark. And this is a relatively recent development. I mean, it's kind of the last decade or so in which these companies like Facebook and Google, which have been traditionally thought of as content providers, right? They don't own the pipes. They put the content through the pipes in contrast to a company like, say, Comcast, but in fact, these big tech companies are investing very heavily now in pipes, you know, particularly undersea cables. And The numbers that you had quoted from my book have, are actually even a bit outdated. I mean, there's even more investment from companies like Google and others in these undersea fiber optic cables that are taking data you know, from one part of the world to another because they've reached a scale at which it makes more sense for them to actually start investing. In this infrastructure rather than use somebody else's. And I think that that's an interesting point that calls into question, actually, even in the structure of my book, which is I, I make a distinction between the pipes and the platforms. Those are the two halves of the book, in order to talk about them somewhat separately. But to some extent, those two worlds have begun to
2: merge.
0: we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Ben Tarnoff, author of the new book, Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future. And as Ben just described, as uh, we were going into break, his book is divided really into two halves. First, first the pipes of the internet, talking about telecom companies like Comcast and, and Charter and so on. And the other half, which we're about to get into, is more about the platforms like Facebook and Google. And uh, both the pipes and the platforms, as he puts it, uh, have enjoyed great inequality in uh, their influence versus everyone else's. And uh, they are doing everything they can to hold on to their consolidated power in the economy. And those are the effects, friends, of privatization on the internet, which is what we're covering in this interview. Now let's listen to the second half of my interview with Ben Tarnoff here on Tectonic on WFMU. my favorite examples in that aspect of, of merging the pipes and platforms comes from Siva Vaidyanathan's book a few years ago called Anti-Social Media. There was one detail in his case study about Facebook's growth that has always stuck with me. Facebook is using its predatory business model, which we'll get to here in a moment, to help bring about the election of Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines. And after Duterte is elected and it becomes clear to everyone what a bad idea that was, And Facebook's complicity should be very embarrassing to the company. What does Facebook do? It then signs an agreement with the Duterte administration to lay undersea cables through the bottom of Manila Bay to give them even faster access to Facebook. And I'm sure there are many other examples you could cite, Ben. They're they're more recent. But that was one early indication to me of what exactly what you were just saying, that these giant big tech beasts now are using both pipes, the infrastructure, and the software of the platforms to further consolidate their power.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good point, Mark. And, you know, Facebook also comes to mind as in some countries being... Indistinguishable from the internet because of these so-called zero-rating deals that they'll cut with telecoms, people can get free access to Facebook on their phones. And you know, in a country like Myanmar in Southeast Asia, people use Facebook, and it's essentially synonymous with the internet. You know, they're doing their messaging through it, they're doing all of their social activity through it. So there are massive investments. Long story short, that these companies are making uh, to become even more ubiquitous in billions of people's lives.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the business models of these platforms. You used a phrase or a term a lot in this second half of the book that I found interesting, online malls. Uh, I hadn't seen that used really before in my other reading, Um, and I liked it. I liked what you're arguing here, that um, these companies in a way are basing their models on the shopping mall, which, you know, was ascendant in the late 20th century. And so it's not like it's completely new what they're doing, um, bringing consumers to a privatized space. But you write that what online malls are doing is they've layered in intrusive ambient surveillance and manipulation of those customers Can you say how the big tech companies now are are emerging as online malls? What does that mean? So online
1: mall is my preferred alternative metaphor for thinking about these complex computational systems that have been built by Facebook, Google, and others. I like online mall, and this is a term that I draw from the work of Jathan Sadowski in developing. The basic idea here being that if you think about the site of a company like Facebook, As equivalent to a shopping mall, it helps clarify certain dynamics of how these systems operate. A shopping mall is a space in which all sorts of interactions can transpire within its walls. Some of these interactions are commercial. You go to a shopping mall and you you buy a piece of clothing, you buy something to eat. Some of these interactions are social, particularly if you're a suburban teenager, you might go to the shopping mall to hang out with your friends. In the offline world, the business model of the shopping mall is basically rents, right? The shopping mall's owner is extracting rents from the merchants who are paying some amount of money to be there, to be able to sell you things. By contrast, in the online mall, such monetary rents are still present. If you think about a company like Uber, they're taking a commission off of every ride, but also crucially online malls can generate data rents. Every interaction, whether it's commercial, social, or otherwise, that takes place within the confines of the online mall generates data. And that data, which is collected by these firms, can in turn be monetized in a variety of different ways. One of the ways, of course, is through targeted advertising. And that's the one that Probably we know most about in the public conversation because there's been so, so much attention to the business model of Facebook and Google. But of course, that's not the only way that data can be monetized. So the brief point to keep in mind about the online mall is that it's a corporate enclosure, which has been designed from the ground up to manufacture and monetize data.
0: And combined with the company's continuing bid for consolidating their power and using all the resources to foreclose any competition or opposition to their power grab, we end up with this very harmful situation, which you had yet another quotable phrase. You write, online malls are inequality machines. They push risks downward and they pull rewards upward and focus them in fewer hands. I thought, that's a really good summary of the business models, the intent, and the effects of companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon. Maybe they could get that printed on a T-shirt to, to wear at their uh, corporate conferences.
1: I like that. Yeah, I you know, trying to come up with a generalization that can apply... <laughs> to all of these different firms was, was hard because, you know, the, the complexity at this layer of the internet is much greater. You know, Facebook is a, a much larger, much richer, and frankly, more complex beast than Comcast. And the distinctions in business model between a Facebook and an Amazon and an Uber are far greater than the distinctions in business model between, say, a Comcast, a Charter, an AT&T, and so on. So trying to come up with a kind of analytical framework that is flexible enough to accommodate this wide variety of different computational systems that fall under this category of the online mall, it turned out to be a little challenging. So I, I kind of landed on this idea of the inequality machine, as you discussed, and in different ways, and there are different ways, each of these companies is increasing inequality by pulling rewards up and pushing risk down. I wanted to
0: move to the last main point that you make in the book, which is solutions, what we should do about these platforms and the companies that control the pipes. You go through a good and accurate description of various reform agendas out there. You talk about Lina Khan and the new Brandeisians, this... Um, group of tech reformers who I happen to like a lot, who are trying to push through legislation and some penalties on the companies. And you write about what their various strategies are. And there are some bills in Congress right now that may or may not get put to a vote before the August recess. So we'll see. But just in general, talking about what should we do about the consolidation of power within big tech and this immense amount of privatization online, what are our possibilities, real possibilities of creating something better online? I saw you describe three things, and maybe you can tell me if I read this right and and what these mean. One is abolition. Uh, One is decentralization in services like Mastodon. And then the final one is interoperability. Maybe maybe let's let's start with abolition. I have said numerous times on this show, I would love it if we could just somehow shut down Facebook entirely, or I guess meta, just shut down the enterprise permanently and salt the earth so it doesn't come back. Um, but I, I think you probably have a more accurate and nuanced definition of abolition. What are you suggesting when you write about
1: abolition? Well... Here is where I draw on the work of Angela Davis and other abolitionist thinkers and try to apply some of their insights to the internet. One of the insights that comes out of the abolitionist tradition is that imaginative failures produce practical failures. When we apply that type of thinking to the internet, I think it clarifies some possible points of departure for us, which is that the goal for me is not simply a better Facebook, whether that's a more regulated Facebook, whether that's a cluster of more competitive mini Facebooks that have been broken up in a kind of in an anti-monopoly way, or whether that's a nationalized Facebook or a cooperativized Facebook, whatever that might look like. But rather we have to do the harder work of imagining A whole constellation of alternatives that can lay claim to the space that these online malls have traditionally occupied. How might we apply some of those practical lessons to the internet? Well, I think the first step is we have to find ways to curb the power and shrink the footprint of the online malls. And this is where I think the anti-monopoly toolkit can be quite useful. Breaking these firms up, banning, mergers and acquisitions doing other things that can encircle them and reduce the amount of power that they have over our online lives but as we do that as we try to let's say produce cracks in these enclosures we should also be seeding those cracks with all manner of invasive species with true alternatives that gives us give us different ways to connect and Some of what these alternatives might look like, we can find inspiration from ongoing experiments. Mastodon comes to mind as an open source project that enables people to run their own social media site and federate them together on an interoperability principle that functions much like email. There have been a number of interesting projects of people running cooperatively organized social media sites where content moderation decisions are made on a democratic basis. So this isn't enough. This is nowhere near enough. But these experiments give us a starting point for how we can imagine not just a better Facebook, but a completely different way to connect online.
0: You mentioned Mastodon as a federated, decentralized platform where moderation decisions can be made democratically within uh, decentralized groups. Connecting to that is an idea of interoperability in which, theoretically, we could have a, a mandated system where Mastodon users could communicate with Facebook users and vice versa. Uh, This is nothing that Facebook would ever agree to, so it would probably have to come as a federal regulation. But you write about the benefits of that approach. You write, interoperability could threaten the business model of online malls. If Facebook users and the users of decentralized alternatives like Mastodon could easily interact, Facebook might shrink
1: and perhaps even collapse. Oh, that would be really nice to see. This is an idea that Cory Doctorow calls adversarial interoperability. One way to think about it is if Facebook is a walled garden, this would break the walls of the walled garden. And it would make it much easier to get people to use alternatives because if they can continue to communicate with people on these different social networks while using alternatives, then they're going to be much more likely to adopt those alternatives. Again, if we think about email – Email is a technology comes out of the early 1970s. It uh, comes out of an era of public ownership and public management. It is you know, a non-proprietary open protocol, and it works through interoperability. So I can have a Gmail account. You can have a Hotmail account. Now, those services can have different features. You know, our spam filters might look different. We might have different sorting mechanisms and so on. But through the magic of open protocols, we can communicate with one another. We can apply the same principle to social media. And what it could create is a much more heterogeneous, much more polycentric online sphere. And one, crucially, in which we can embed democratic decision making into the network. One of the things that federated social media does is it pushes decisions from the core of the network, from the Zuckerbergs of the world, to the edges of the network, where the users are. Before
0: we wrap up, Ben, I just want to ask a more general question that I didn't see in the book. And I'm I'm really curious to know whether you're feeling hopeful. (laughs) I mean, reading Internet for the People, this is a great collection of case studies showing where we came from, how the internet got over privatized to the really harmful degree that it is today. And you do go through some possible solutions in the future. And as you say, there's um, some efforts in Congress right now that are looking promising. But it just seems really daunting. I mean, reading the scale of the problem that you describe in the book, and the very early stage nature of some of these efforts. What do you think our chances are, Ben? Do you do you feel Hopeful about the future of the internet?
1: <laughs> uh, goodness, that's a that's a great question, Mark. I so my my new line on hope uh, and optimism comes from uh, Joseph Weizenbaum, who was a of artificial intelligence, if we can call it that, and uh, a wonderful critic of AI and technological thinking more broadly. Weizenbaum uh, had a line where he said something like. Optimism and pessimism is a matter of probability. You know, it's, if you're an optimist, you think there's a better than fifty percent chance of a good outcome, and if you're a pessimist, you know the opposite. Whereas hope is a matter of possibility. You know, things don't have to be probable for them to be possible. So improbably, hope always remains. <laughs> I think that's something that I've been trying to return to. When I think about the current political juncture, because it's not as if a more democratic internet is the only thing that seems remote. I mean, frankly, any meaningful, uh, progressive change on any of these issues, climate change perhaps the most urgently feels somewhat remote in our current moment. But I think it's important to keep in mind, of course, is that, um, you know, history takes very unpredictable paths. Uh, We could not have expected the level of social mobilization that we saw with the George Floyd uprising in summer 2020. I don't think anyone would have seen that coming. Uh, And yet we had, you know, the biggest, social movement protest in American history. So the unexpected does happen and you know what we'll need is a social movement, a higher level of social mobilization, you know, bottom up political struggle. And it'll come. It'll come in one way or another. It may not come as soon as we'd like it to, but I have faith. I have hope, let's say. Hope improbably remains.
0: And so does this book thankfully. Internet for the People by my guest today, Ben Tarnoff. Ben, thanks again for being back on the show. Thanks so much, Mark. And we're back. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I am your host for the remaining 15 minutes of the show and then Spin the Globe with Ebba will take over and there's some more stuff I'm going to tell you about in a couple minutes about what's, what's happening this evening some, some cool stuff here at WFMU this evening and beyond so I hope you will stay tuned after the end of this episode of Tectonic we just heard my interview with Ben Tarnoff talking about his new book Internet for the People the fight for our digital future. And uh, I didn't ask him this, but I'm going to guess that the title Internet for the People is really a statement saying as opposed to Internet for five corporations and their eight techno billionaire CEOs and assorted VC vassals, uh, which is the Internet that we have now, which is the product of over privatization and as, as Ben brought up, uh, we could do a lot better than the privatization that, uh, that we experience now. And uh, as he said, uh, halfway th- or so through the interview, there were always proposals to popularize the internet without comprehensively privatizing it. We had, in other words, we had chances along the way to do something different and Based on a variety of very powerful forces and inputs, we ended up with this uh, privatized environment, this this uh, uh, online mall or selection of online malls that uh, match the economy. As one person on the chat board said at WFMU.org, the economy increasingly seems to resemble walking through an airport where everything is surveilled and locked down and uh, there are a few stores of course with ambient surveillance they're all owned by a few companies and they tend to be staffed by uh, low paid workers that's what the Internet has turned out to be rather than a force for democracy and creativity and everything that we were promised and everything that frankly I got involved in uh, in the mid 90s hoping to help create and it's just gone in the opposite direction so thanks to Ben Tarnoff for being on the show. And uh, as, as he says, uh, hope remains. <laughs> maybe, maybe realistically, given that Senator Schumer still is not sending the bills through for a vote, we'll go back and listen to my episode on the bills from, from a few weeks ago to get details on that. But Senator Schumer still is sitting on his hands. Maybe it's not realistic to hope, but that's, that's all we've got, friends, is hope for something better and it starts by raising awareness about what's happening so i hope this this interview and this book are helping to do that Uh, as promised a couple of minutes on the florida keys if you don't know u.s geography the florida keys uh, are a a series of islands on the southern tip of florida they start not far south of miami miami of course is the southernmost big city in Florida. And then there's a, there, I don't know how many islands there are. The Keys are just islands. It it comes from an old Spanish word, Cayo. So the Florida Keys are, it it must be a couple of hundred islands out there. And they go for about a hundred miles, roughly to the Southwest, finishing up with Key West, which is the westernmost island. There are more Keys to the West of Key West, but for some reason that's where uh, we we consider the Florida Keys to come to an end at, at Key West. And I was there. Uh, I really enjoyed. If you go to Key West, go to the Hemingway home. They've preserved uh, Ernest Hemingway's house, and you can take a peek into his writing studio, and just really nice people running the uh, the museum there, if, it, if museum or, or or whatever the exhibits, I guess. Um, and uh, it was really inspirational to see where this great writer lived and worked. And uh, I also did some outdoorsy kind of stuff. I, uh, I went snorkeling and I went walking on a, on a beach, not really a sand beach, but a kind of a rotting kelp um, beach of one of the barrier islands that sit between the Keys and one of the, uh, the, the local part of the, the giant coral reef that's there. And um did you listen to my interview, by the way? This is this is pertinent. Did you listen to my interview a few months ago with Bob Ostertag? He's this uh, musician, longtime electronic musician based in San Francisco. This was from last year's last April 19, uh 2021. And Bob Ostertag, although he's mostly known for his music, he had just come out with a new book called Facebooking the Anthropocene. In Raja Ampat. Raja Ampat is a very uh, secluded and remote and hard to get to island in the Indonesian archipelago where uh, a lot of people go for scuba dives and, and things like that. And so he finally makes it all the way out to Raja Ampat in this very difficult place to get to. You got to take a plane and a boat, another plane, another boat and a bus and another boat. And anyway, he finally gets to Raja Ampat in this very, very secluded place. And all of the uh, little um, hotels or Airbnbs, that kind of gives it away. Um, the owners are all on their phones and, and, and booking guests through the Airbnb app. Anyway, the, the image that sticks with me from that book and that interview, I, I brought up this specific part of the book in, in my interview on the show, go, and go back and listen to it, but Bob talked about seeing a huge amount of plastic detritus that was washed up on the beach and uh, there's, there is a local issue in a lot of communities, a lot of beach communities in Southeast Asia about trash washing up on the beaches. And the residents can't keep up. There's just more every day. And, in fact, there was no real effort to clean up the beaches because if they cleaned up the beach in Raja Ampat one day, it would just deliver, the ocean would deliver yet more trash the next day. And I thought about that. You know, what what must it be like to walk on, as Bob put it, a plastic beach? Well, anyway, there I was in the Florida Keys on this one barrier island. Maybe maybe technically it's considered a key itself, but it was further out towards a coral reef and sure enough, got to the kelp uh, beach, if you can call it that. And it was strewn with thousands and thousands and millions of little pieces of plastic. Some of them had already degraded into smaller pieces of of plastic, and some of them had not degraded yet because they had just washed up. For example, the tube of toothpaste—the full tube of toothpaste—that I witnessed out out in the kelp. And just there's one thing about uh, to read about it and talk to someone like Bob Ostertag about his experience seeing a plastic beach. It was quite another experience to walk myself not in bare feet I have no interest in that in my water shoes to walk around on a plastic beach in the United States and to reflect on what does it mean this is not a an Asian issue it's not an American issue this is a systemic society wide issue that reflects And this is my punchline that I have been building up to with um, the way I saw it it reflects the outcomes of a a fully privatized economy that has this underlying faith in eternal growth that we can exploit our natural resources, we can make as much plastic as we want, and we can do whatever the heck we want to uh, with those those plastics and those tubes of toothpaste and everything else that's never going to break down, not in any uh, foreseeable future for human society. And, you know, you, you can pick up a few. I looked at one. I, I, I cleared out one square inch or, or uh, what is that in, in metric? Uh, five square centimeters of this beach. And I pulled out every tiny little piece of plastic that I could. And then I dug through, I dug down to the soil and I, and I scraped off a millimeter or two of soil. And I found, y- y- you can guess what I found under that, more plastic. And I thought, even if you had a great beach cleanup day, you're standing on a plastic beach. You're standing on the, the outcomes of an eternal growth-oriented economy. And to the point that Ben Tarnoff was making about the internet, which is essentially another plastic beach, um, there is no incremental solution. You can't take Facebook and break it up into three baby Facebooks, all with their own unethical leader, with an eye towards exploitation of, of the weak and vulnerable and hope that that's going to fix the issue. Nor can we look at a beach that's full of plastic and say, well, we'll just have a beach cleanup on the second Tuesday of every month. Everyone pick up all the toothpaste tubes and doll heads and plastic bags and we'll, we'll make a dent in it because that's, that's not even a Band-Aid. Uh, calling it a Band-Aid solution is a great compliment. Um, it doesn't get anywhere near the root causes of what we're facing here. This is a systemic issue in that we have placed our faith in the wrong thing. Eternal growth of an economy is impossible, and it is it, it, just logically impossible, and it very clearly does not equate to any kind of human health for individuals or communities. It's cancerous. Cancer is not healthy, and this metastasizing economy, this eternal growth-oriented economy is barfing, vomiting uh, uh, tons of plastic onto this this one little barrier island and into the sea turtles that ingest it as they're trying to lay eggs. And eventually, it's going to come back and reach around to get all of us, all of us, no matter if we live near a beach or not. And that's what really bothers me. Um, Whether we're talking about the environment, climate change, or indeed the internet that Ben Tarnoff so skillfully walks us through, an internet for the people, we need to look for systemic change, not simply Band-Aids. And that's the truth that I wanted to share with you this evening. Thanks again very much for joining me. Uh, I want you to stay tuned for EBBA and Spin the Globe. And uh, after that, stay tuned for Dan Boda on Vocal Fry. He has a special guest. He has an interview with Ian Nagoski tonight. And then stay tuned starting at 9 p.m. Eastern to hear Brother Daniel Blumen on his eponymous show, which is always great. So stay tuned to WFMU, friends. This is the greatest radio station in the world. WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM, and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know exactly what to do. Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google and for our outro this evening, I want to thank the great Evan Funk Davies for pointing me to this tune. Check the playlist at WFMU.org to get the details. See you next week, friends.
3: There's been a lot of talk about what happens when we sleep On the job like the night watch in a heist movie didn't we? My love can't be asked to dance. No feet in the street, unseen by surveillance. Now I'm an undertaker, and I never wanted. the surveillance industry is a spectator sport with a really, really warm. A spectator sport, and more popcorn when you're bored. We want no observations. We want no questions, please. See something, say nothing, unless it's to the police. No feet in the street unseen by surveillance. My love can't be asked to dance. No feet in the street unseen by surveillance. My love can't be asked to dance. No feet in the street unseen by surveillance. (Sings)
4: Little little deed and the little deed, the little lamb, the little lamb, the little lamb, the little lamb, the little Doo doo doo